This podcast is for informational purposes only. Information relating to investment approaches or individual investments should not be construed as advice or endorsement. Listeners should seek professional advice for their situation. Welcome to Get Sharp, a podcast focused on actionable medium-term macro insights from industry leaders. I'm your co-host, Matthew Schnur, and I'm joined by Dustin Reed, McKenzie's Chief Fixed Income Strategist, as the other co-host. Dustin, welcome to This Side of the Table. Uh, it's great to be on This Side of the Table with you, Matt. Thanks very much for uh, helping me put this uh, put this project together. Of course. Well, I'm uh, very excited to get going and record our first episode. Uh, who do we have here today, Dustin, to speak with? So to kick off our inaugural episode, we have Dan Clifton, who's a partner and head of policy research at uh, Stratega Securities. Dan sits in Washington, D.C., and uh, Dan and I have been chatting for many, many years, and he's uh, outstanding on Washington policy and on uh, on tax issues and and how those, uh, importantly for our clients, how those Im- those issues can have an impact on markets, both, both for fixed income and equities and uh, cross assets. Uh, Dan has been the number one rated policy analyst um, for 14 years in a row on institutional investor uh, as well as uh, in the also in the category of tax and accounting policy, so he's extremely well versed in everything to do with tax policy, politics, and uh, and as I like to say, and when I used to do the, a little bit of this in my former life, where policy and markets intersect, which I think is a really really fascinating part of the market. Um, Dan does a lot of press on CNBC and Bloomberg, and uh, before he joined Strategus, Dan was the executive director. Of the American Shareholders Association, which is a nonpartisan nonprofit association, uh, which analyzes public policy affecting shareholders. So it's a real pleasure awesome. to have uh, Dan uh, here today for our inaugural episode. Dan, thanks very much for joining us. I'm so honored to be here for the inaugural episode. Thank you so much for having me today. And I look forward to a great conversation on everything politics, policy, and how it impacts financial markets. Yeah, amazing, and uh, and we are we are as well. So maybe we'll we'll jump right into it. We really wanted to have a a deeper dive on uh, what to many may sound a bit early, uh, but to us, um, particularly within fixed income and, and myself, who also sits on the Global Investor Committee, starting to think about the 2024 U.S. election and policy implications, n- not only for geopolitics but also uh, particularly for for investors, obviously. So. Uh, Dan, maybe to, to kick it off, why in you know July of 2023 should we start caring or care about the implications of the uh, U.S. Uh, election in 2024? Yeah, listen, I'm I'm very excited for the 2024 election. The range of outcomes here are quite large, mm-hmm. so uh, I think that's what makes it interesting for investors. And you have both the Republican and Democratic primary. But when you think about why this is important, once we cleared out the debt ceiling you started seeing our clients who are institutional investors coming to us talking a lot more about the 2024 election. We believe investors are starting to do the due diligence on the candidates, the potential outcomes, and the impact that they will have. And our research has shown that the uh, presidential election and the congressional election results in a presidential election year begin to price in as early as January of that presidential election year. So the second half of this year is really kind of the due diligence stage. And then you start to actually see investors being put on trades. By the time you get to the election, a lot of that is priced in at this point. So it's good to be ahead of the game. 
But there's a second part to this, and that is that this is a very different type of an election. This is now an election happening where the three major policy frameworks of, of monetary policy, fiscal policy, and geopolitics have all been upended. And so who wins will have a dramatic impact on who's going to be the Fed chair after 2026, because Jay Powell's uh, term ends then, and so the next Fed chair will be appointed by the next president. This is a president that will get elected and will have to deal with the first rising debt service cost in 35 years in the United States. And you have all of the Trump tax cuts expiring at the end of 2025. So the next president will have a very outsized impact on the fiscal trajectory of the United States. And then finally, how do you deal with China? China is becoming an increasingly bipartisan issue here in Washington. There's really not much difference between Biden and Trump now that we've seen both of them preside over this. But clearly, China is going to be looking to challenge that new president, particularly if it's a new president, one not named Trump or Biden. And so I think the stakes of this election are as great as I've seen in my 25 years in politics. And I do think that investors are starting to pay attention to it now. Yeah, that's great. Uh, that's a great overview. I think um – yeah, I agree. I think there's going to be a fair bit of a fair bit of focus on this, particularly with the the two actors that seem to be leading yep. uh, in some ways. Uh, do Do you think we will actually have uh, a Biden Trump uh, essentially essentially runoff for for 2024? Do you think we'll see we'll see different players? Well, you get right to it. Uh, like you don't waste any time, Dustin. So uh, <laughs> obviously, you have Trump and Biden as the favorites. It's very possible that both of them can be the nominees. Uh, Trump's lead in the Republican primary is extremely commanding right now. What's interesting to us is that his numbers with independents have really begun to cradle here following the federal indictments. And so I believe that Trump's support is a lot softer today than you see in the polls. And that's going to play out over the next six to seven months. And then you have Joe Biden. If Joe Biden wants to be the nominee, he's likely going to be the nominee. But his support is softer than people anticipate, particularly with younger voters and more liberal voters. And he's being challenged by Robert Kennedy Jr. And that's likely going to have a similar effect as Pat Buchanan did for George Herbert Walker Bush in 1992, where you dent the popularity of a sitting president. And that has all sorts of implications. It makes it easier to beat that candidate. It opens up for a third party challenge. And so both of the leading candidates that if you were to have the election today, uh, you know, they're probably going to start to disintegrate uh, in terms of their support over the next six months. And uh, and again, I, you know, I'd say over the next six months, it seems far away. But, you know, you'll start voting in the Republican primary in January with the Iowa caucuses. It is not that far away. And where we'll start to gauge it is really about one month from where we sit right now. And that will be the Iowa Fair. Uh, Iowa will be the first state for the Republicans. And that will give the chance for other candidates to begin to show up where they are. In terms of your question, who's going to challenge each of these candidates? Obviously, people are focused on Ron DeSantis right now, the governor of Florida. An amazing victory, winning by 18 points in Florida this usually is a 50-50 state. He won uh, across demographics, should be a natural challenger to Trump, and really hasn't been able to get his footing. And so why I bring that up to you is because the DeSantis campaign is very clear that they're going to start in Iowa. 
that's where they want to start showing support for their numbers. And if they're saying, if we can live in Iowa and move the needle in the polling against Trump, that shows that we can do it in other states like New Hampshire and South Carolina. That's their strategy. We're getting what I call the earnings report of politics in the next couple of days, and that's going to be the fundraising totals for 2Q. And if you see weaker than expected fundraising numbers from DeSantis, that's going to be a warning sign that maybe he's not going to be the guy who challenges Trump, so to speak. I'm sure he's able to raise some money. But then, you know, donors are just starting to get nervous that maybe he doesn't have it after some of his recent flare-ups, particularly the one around Ukraine, but also what his message is like, hey, I'm not Trump and I'm the only guy who can win. That hasn't really worked with a lot of donors. And so then you got to say who's in that next tier after that. And I would say the top two candidates after that are um, Tim Scott, the senator from South Carolina, and Glenn Youngkin, the governor of Virginia. Now, if you look at the polls today, you say, Glenn who? He's getting zero. His probability of winning is about one. As an investor, I like those odds. I can only probably go up from here. But I do think that uh, Glenn Youngkin is probably going to be somebody who will emerge as an alternative later this summer should uh, DeSantis not pick up traction, uh, particularly in Iowa, and whether his uh, fundraising is soft. But I expect his fundraising to be strong, at least in the short term. But he's going to have to show further progress to continue to get that money. How significant do you think the outstanding legal issues on the Trump side are going to make it for him to actually run a proper campaign? Well, uh, I don't know any candidate, uh, viable candidate for the presidency, who had to put a field team together in Iowa, in New Hampshire, in South Carolina, also think about the general election, and prepare for two, uh, possibly two federal indictments at the same time. There's just not enough bandwidth there, right? But Trump is the one who always said he don't exercise because he doesn't have enough energy to exercise and do all the other things he does. And by the way, he's very active, kept us up late at night, you know, during four years of his presidency. But he's he's a believer in bandwidth and his bandwidth is down here. Uh Obviously, the president is getting a sympathy vote from Republicans who believe that he's being targeted as a political enemy and they have rallied to him. But over time, I think that gets a lot harder to do. Now, what I what I think is important is that we have to understand the personalities involved in the Trump campaign. And this is a much more serious campaign than what you saw on his previous two campaigns. He has two people running his campaign. It works extremely well. The first is Susie Wyless. She ran President Trump's Florida operation in 2020 and 2016. She also ran Governor DeSantis's Florida gubernatorial race his first time around uh, in 2018. She's very skilled. And if I was running for president, I have no political interest, but if I was running for president, that's the one person I would want on my team. And I do think that she wakes up every day less to make Trump president, but more to make sure that DeSantis doesn't become president after her fallout in Florida. So extremely skilled, knows where the levers are, uh, and and to me is somebody who is very effective in being able to handle both of these issues at the same time. Trump's other co, uh, co what I would call co-campaign chair, although that's not their official titles, is a guy named Chris LaSavita, who really is an incredible message person and really is able to drive wedges between Trump and whoever he's running against. Uh, He's best known for being part of the Swift Boat Veterans for Truth in 2004, which went after John Kerry, 
when he ran against George W. Bush. And the reason why that's important is that what La Civita does is he understands what's your greatest strength as a candidate, and then he destroys that greatest strength. Most people think campaigns are about going after your opponent's weakness. He understands going after your strength is what you take down. So you see a lot of Trump saying like, oh, New York did a better job with COVID than Florida. We all know that that's an absurd thing, us who watch this closely. But that's what they constantly say as a way to make COVID, which is DeSantis's greatest strength, more of a liability for him. So, you know, that's the politics game. And my point here is that it's just a much more professional Trump operation than what you've been used to. And that gives him a better chance of being able to deal with both of these issues. What you should watch for is whether Trump's legal team is able to get this federal case punted out past the primary. And I do think that that could happen. This is a pretty simple case. You'll have to get the jurors national security clearance because they're going to have to look at classified information as the evidence. It takes a little bit of time, but it shouldn't take a year. And um, and that's why the Trump legal team is going to have to push that out. I ultimately think Trump should be arguing that this should be pushed out to 2025, and then you let the voters decide. But that's going to be harder to get that second kick. And you may have this yeah. federal indictment going on at mm-hmm. the same time he's running for presidency, which seems a bit odd to us and yeah. really hard to handicap because we've never really seen anything like this before. That's great. Just uh, chime in on the Democratic side. I mean, yep. Biden clearly seems like the heir apparent uh, to uh, to run should he want to, as you said. I'm curious, what's your view on how much his um, chances or how much his support is tied to having Trump as the um, yep sort of obvious opponent or likely opponent? Awesome question. So, uh, you know, I, I haven't write, been writing a lot about the election up until last week. And now that the president gave a speech outlining his economic vision for the country, uh, that kind of set the tone that the presidential race is now starting. And the president clearly is running for president. Uh, when we would write this in October and November, our clients would say, there's no way he's running for president. You know, my dad and the president are similar in age. My dad's a former cop, probably best driver I've ever been in a car with before. <laughs> and he's, you know, slowed down a lot. I'm not sure I'm comfortable with him driving around all the time these days. And he's not running the world's largest country or uh, largest economy. So this job can age the most healthiest person. He's obviously older and he's got to decide for himself not whether he can make it through the next year, not whether he can make it through this election, but whether he can make it through the next four years after he wins re-election. So to me, that's going to be the biggest decision the president needs to make over the next couple of months. And what you see is other candidates like um, Gavin Newsom kind of circulating, circulating around in case something happens there. But let's assume that Biden does become the candidate. He would much rather have Trump as his opponent than anybody else. Because let's look at it. Like DeSantis has some liabilities, but DeSantis is young versus old. And the reason that is important is that if you look at a history of U.S. presidential elections, U.S. voters generally choose the complete opposite of the president that was there before. If you just want to start like, you know, Eisenhower, Kennedy, or Kennedy, uh, right? Eisenhower, Kennedy. You look at... um, you know, Carter versus Reagan. You look at George Herbert Walker Bush versus uh, Bill Clinton. Bill Clinton versus George W. Bush. 
George W. Bush versus Barack Obama, Barack Obama versus Donald Trump, Donald Trump versus Joe Biden. They all have this opposites attract kind of view when you go through that history. And I think that there's a real uh, what I call a competency bid that's going on amongst voters They They want a cycle of competency and it may not show up this cycle around. But if you do put somebody in there who's younger, more energetic, it changes the probability of whether Trump, uh, whether Biden can win. And so what I would argue here uh, is that if the Republicans nominate somebody other than Donald Trump, the chances of the Republicans winning the presidency go up. But more importantly, the Republican odds of winning the Senate go up. Uh, Hmm. What does that mean? If you look at the 2016 and 2020 election, nearly every Republican Senate candidate in a target race ran higher than Trump did in the presidential race. Think about what I'm saying. I'm smashing the consensus view that Trump has parroted. And that is that Marco Rubio in Florida pulled Donald Trump over the finish line in Florida. Pat Toomey in Pennsylvania pulled Donald Trump over the finish line. The senators lead Trump. So if you have Trump on the ticket, your chances of losing Georgia and Arizona go up. And that's what happened in 2020. And so that that's the way investors are going to interpret the Republican primary, is that if Trump is on the ticket, then the odds of the Democrats winning the Senate go up and the odds of winning the Democrats winning the presidency go up as well. You also have 18 House seats that are controlled by Republicans today that Joe Biden won in 2020. You've had a couple of recent Supreme Court decisions that uh, would actually force some districts to be redrawn. The chances of the Republicans losing the House go up. So who the Republican nominee matters, not just for Joe Biden, but for the Democrats in the Senate and the Democrats in the House. Joe Biden doesn't even have to mention Donald Trump's name because everybody knows what's going on with Donald Trump. And I think that that's their preferred option And I'm not saying that they orchestrated this or, you know, there's a lot of talk about that on Republican circles. All I'm saying is that the the cards in front of them are actually working to their advantage. That becomes infinitely harder if Glenn Youngkin, the governor of Virginia, is the candidate against him. Cycle of competency, governing a state, doing it in a very least controversial way. And we've looked at polling where Youngkin is actually beating Biden in the state of Virginia by 10 points. A state that a state that uh, uh, Joe Biden easily beat Donald Trump by 12 points in 2020. So candidate selection matters a lot, and it's going to have just as big of an impact on the presidential race as it will on the down ticket races as well. Maybe the last question on on this uh, on this area for for now, but broadly speaking, I know it matters who the candidates are going to be. But broadly speaking, Dan, what do you think are the big policy implications and investor implications of the 24 election if it's a Republican one maybe Trump uh, Democrat one um, you know maybe Biden how would how would how should investors look at that and position their portfolios for that yeah awesome question so first um, let me start off by saying that uh, I think the geopolitics will matter what I would start to look at is how is the China stock market How is the India stock market? How's the Vietnam stock market and how the Mexican stock market are all trading relative to um, to each other? And and what I mean by that is, you know, if you see that Trump is going to win, 
your chances of a further, uh, what I would say, uh, movement out of China and into India will go up substantially. And so the market's going to look at the decoupling trade on the presidential race, one that it's going to affect entire stock market trading. On monetary policy, you're going to get a much more hawkish view of monetary policy. As you know, Dustin, because you know it better than anybody, uh, is that once you start to see, uh, once you get into office, you, you get less hawkish. And, you know, Trump obviously uh, always thought Jay Powell was more hawkish than what he what he thought he was going to be. But they're going to look at who's going to be the Fed chairman. And yep. I would start to think that you would still get a traditional Republican Fed chair even if Trump wins the presidency itself. So on that front, but really broadly, is that it's going to be focused on the corporate space. Because if the Democrats win, they're going to extend all the individual income tax cuts that are expiring. They're going to pay for it through higher taxes on corporate income. And so you'll start to see companies with high tax rates, companies with a lot of multinational income, they're going to start getting targeted to fund this you would also see it in some sort of pharmaceutical stocks and the continued regulation of the banking stocks. So those are going to be the big areas that get hit, you know, kind of on the tax fiscal policy side to fund those fiscal policy obligations. And then obviously energy is the biggest one of them all. I think it's very interesting that if we move to a multipolar world, then you're going to have to have your own energy resources in a Republican victory would solidify what I think is a movement to a North America supercontinent where we're actually deploying clean energy and natural gas and pipelines. And I would argue you're starting to see this from the president. I know he's not going to be deliberate about it, but the president just signed a debt ceiling bill that approved the Mountain Valley Pipeline. He's approved two big Alaska oil projects. The, The implications of this are very, very important Because if we start building that North America supercontinent, it becomes a pole to this kind of China, Russia, Saudi access that's developing uh, right now uh, as uh, as countries try and move away from the U.S. But ultimately, Dustin, how the world looks at this race is there's going to be very divergent views. And if Trump wins, Europe and Asia are going to be looking for hedges because Mm -hmm. they're going to view the U.S. as less reliable. If Biden wins, the Middle East is going to be moving closer to China and Russia because they're going to view Biden as someone who's going to come after them. That's why if you get a new face there, it can create a much more balanced policy on mm-hmm. one side or the other, like a Gavin Newsom or a or Glenn Youngkin or Ron DeSantis, so to speak. Right. That's really good perspective. I actually hadn't thought of it that way. You basically, if, if kind of the one of two standards come in or assumptions come in with you know, either Biden or Trump, you're going to get uh, – a bit of a a bit of a tectonic shift in terms of the the allegiances um, over uh, over the coming years. I think that's a, that's a really good point. Maybe not far away from that, but shifting gears slightly. Uh, and we talked about it at the beginning of um, the beginning of the podcast. Uh, U.S. China relations. Um, U.S. China relations obviously were very challenged uh, a few years ago, pre pandemic, during the pandemic. Seem to have come off uh, a little bit now with uh, Treasury Secretary Yellen is there right now. Um, you know, Blinken's had some meetings. Uh, obviously, there are phone calls with Biden and, uh, and President Xi. 
Um, so some of, there's some thawing, but that's from my perspective. Your perspective, I think, is much more interesting. Can you give us a little bit of an, uh, an update as to what you think is interesting on the U.S.-China relations side and, and what you think it might mean uh, for investors here, at least through the rest of the first uh, Biden term, so to speak? Yeah, listen, I think, um, I think the market and uh, Chinese policymakers believe that if Biden won, uh, it would be a little bit easier in tensions than with Trump. Mm-hmm. And they quickly learn that that's not the case. And what that's telling you is that the official U.S. government policy internally, so it doesn't matter who wins the presidency, sees China as trying to displace the United States and causing a lot of havoc around the world, right? Mm-hmm. So the Biden folks came in, they were like, oh, this is going to be fine. Um, and then they get their first national security briefing and they were like, well, this isn't going to be fine. Right. So just generally, that's where we moved. That created this kind of tension that lasted through 2021 and 2022. And something fascinating happened in November of last year. And that is that 13 representatives from the Chinese government, uh, they weren't official government representatives, met with 13 equivalents on the U.S. side. And the message was very simple. China, we ha- China saying we have our problems. U.S., you have your problems. Let's have a ceasefire here. Let's figure out our domestic problems. We're going to end zero COVID. We're going to open up for business. And we want to have a strong reopening. And that lasted probably 10 weeks, Dustin. Right. right. It was an exuberant yeah. 10 weeks. If you it, was. Sure. <laughs> it was. Right? Yeah. And it was like, yeah. whoa. Right. And, you know, all the U.S. domestic stocks, which had a great 2022, they got just crushed coming yeah. out of that rotation. It's now you can mm-hmm. own more multinational stocks and Everybody seemed to be happy. And then this balloon just started circulating over. And uh, that balloon was going over the most sensitive U.S. sites, it, um, uh, not just our nuke facilities, but where we build B-52 bombers and things like that. Right. So, you know, it was it was it was a very contentious issue. The Chinese thought we handled it bad. And that ceasefire was over in nine weeks. Okay. The Chinese reopening hasn't been very good. But what's very interesting to me, Dustin, mm-hmm. is that why we were having that conversation, because Russia attacked Ukraine. Right. And when Russia attacked Ukraine, the businesses began to diversify after building these amazing supply chains over the last 30 or 40 years. They began mm-hmm. to move out to other areas like India, like we mentioned before, Vietnam, Mexico, even yep. here in the United States. Right. And the stat that I put out for my clients yesterday is that U.S. imports in uh, U.S. imports from China in the first four months of this year hit its lowest level since 2004 in the month of April. That's wow, an yeah. amazing mm-hmm. statistic. Mm-hmm. That is the supply chains diversifying out, and the effect that that is having is that it's starting to slow down the Chinese economy. Right. And so, yes, they're talking. Biden wants a ceasefire so that he can have good relations into the presidential election. The Chinese want to right-size their economy. What are they doing? They're bringing in Jamie Dimon, Elon Musk, Bill Gates. They're putting on a charm offensive to try and say to businesses, it's okay to be here. Why this is important is that those companies are now saying that, hey, there's supply chain risk here being located because we just saw what happened with Russia, Ukraine. There's all this sable rattling about Taiwan. We're going to diversify. And what we have to think about here is whether China policy is beginning to shift as well, knowing that's the case. Mm-hmm. Maybe we tone it down on Taiwan. Maybe we have less saber rattling on Taiwan. Mm-hmm. And we start saying, OK, how can the 
domestic politics of Taiwan change. So the biggest election of 2024 may not be the U.S. election in November. It may be the Taiwan election in January, where I think you're seeing a very strategic shift from the Chinese saying, let's see if we can influence Taiwan domestic politics and who the candidate is for that election so that we can start to change Taiwan policy rather than sable-rattling on a Taiwan attack that could actually lead to more out-migration of businesses and a slower economy. Because you know their economy has more challenges than just what I outlined, property issues and other factors. They want to manage that the best they can. So this, to me, is a really important shift that could be happening. We're getting early signs of it. And I think Uh investors would be wise to pay attention to it and be very focused on what's going to be the outcome of that Taiwan election. That's fascinating. Has the horse left the barn already on the uh, diversifying of supply chains and the like? Like if China does do this pivot and uh, quits the aggressive talk or tones down the aggressive talk about Taiwan, do you think that U.S. businesses would respond? So uh, I don't. Uh, I think your question is an excellent one. This 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 didn't happen overnight. This started with Trump in 2018. The right. difference today, and I talked to Dustin a lot during this time, is that like the businesses would call up and they would complain about what Trump was doing. Right, their lobbyists were lobbying heavily to remove the tariffs. You don't see really much activity around that today. Um, maybe we do some modest tariff reduction down the road. But even as Jenny Yellen is going over there to speak, you also have now new restrictions on the metals that are used for semi-chips, right? So right. this war, the, the, and I don't want to say war like war like like guns, but this economic war, this economic supremacy battle is really taking place regardless of what that rhetoric is. So we can have ceasefires and then they're going to restart again. The stakes are too high. And the businesses have now, after five years, come to the conclusion that it's better to be diversified than have all your eggs in one basket. So to answer your question directly, I do think that the horse has left the barn. And I do think that that creates enormous investment opportunities in areas that are willing to take this on. India does not have the labor, does not have the infrastructure. China is very good at supply chains, but the message is being sent. We're looking for somewhere else to go. And I always think that you'll find a natural recipient of that. By the way, I think there's going to be massive change here in the United States where we're going to just build things for ourselves. And Mm -hmm. that's why you see the continued onshoring debate happening. We just finished our second quarter, uh, our first half review. And what's interesting is in our thematic uh, equity baskets, the big winners were infrastructure, clean energy, Infrastructure, clean energy, onshoring, and the ancillary businesses that are building semiconductor facilities in the United States. They crushed the S&P 500. And what were the big losers? Are companies that get government spending just general like transfer payments, both at the state and federal level. So investors have made a very bifurcated decision and that there's going to be more investment in the United States. And to do that, you need infrastructure, you need energy, you need high value tech manufacturing, and that's all starting to be reflected in the stock market today. Maybe one more on on this topic that I get a lot, particularly kind of on the, the fixed income side. Do you see or have you heard concerns that China is going to uh, dump, for lack of a better term, uh, a significant part or all of 
uh, its U.S. Treasury holdings, which would obviously have a significant impact on the value of U.S. Treasuries globally, uh, safe haven status, you know, the dollar, the dollar, uh, the dollar as a global reserve currency, etc. Where do you think that debate is? I, I mean, I think I personally think it's a little bit fantastical, but uh, you know, always interested in what you think on on this and what other what you think other people are thinking on this. So I, I don't think we're at that point, um, but the more important shift that's taking place is that there are fewer natural buyers of treasuries today. The Fed is no longer buying treasuries. The Saudis are buying less in treasuries, right? That might be the most important shift that's taking place. The Mm -hmm. Chinese are buying less treasuries Mm -hmm. and the debt needs of the United States are going up. Mm -hmm. So that means that it's got to come out of one of two other places and that's bank reserves or money market funds and That's going to be a real challenge for the U.S. government. The U.S. government has a $2 trillion deficit today with a 3.7% unemployment rate. That With a 3.7% unemployment rate, you should have a surplus. So I don't know what's going to happen in the economy, but if unemployment rises here, Mm -hmm. your deficit's going to widen out considerably and you don't have those buyers. So just buying less is making the financing issues of the U.S. government harder without having to divest your treasuries. And maybe taking a loss on those treasuries, right? We uh-huh. got to know what their position is. So there's other ways that the Chinese can play that. And that's more of a nuclear type of situation. And I mean, nuclear, not in the sense of the bomb, but, you know, just kind of like, okay, last resort, that's what we have to do. So I, I just generally think the Chinese have much other options that focus on critical minerals that would make it hard for the Defense Department to get the uh, technologies that they need for their censoring equipment. Those are going to be much more likely type of events before you get to the um, the, the 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 liquidation of a treasury holding, so to speak. Yeah, yeah. That makes and a lot then of the, sense. the other issue, which I forgot to mention, is just a large amount of central banks around the world that are buying uh, gold, and I don't mean just hmm. you know Russia and China. I mean India and other countries uh-huh. where you see that gold, and there's just a diversification away from the United States that right. really, again, was the consequence of the Russia-Ukraine war. Yeah, you're definitely seeing that. Uh, yeah, you're seeing that even before the war, and you're definitely seeing it. Yep. You know, ex post. Yeah, the uh, you know, the U.S. as a global reserve currency is still very much a thing, but it's you know, when you look at the COFR data, which is the uh, yeah, the the uh, the global central bank data for reserves, it's definitely it's definitely on a lower lower trajectory. Maybe you'd pick up slightly again on on that thread. I know you and your team have done a lot of proprietary work on. Uh, the liquidity issue in the U.S. and how it could impact various asset classes, equities, fixed income, uh, etc. Maybe we could get into that, dig into that a little bit. Um, yeah. What What are you seeing? And this is—it's a bit of an—it's a bit of a minutiae topic, but I think from a broad macro perspective, when you're looking at what could happen over the next one or two quarters for the back half of 23, it could be. It could be a driver, and so I think it's it's a it's a topic that um, a lot of investors aren't necessarily paying as much attention to as a driver. So maybe you could give us a, a few thoughts on why you think that 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 topic is important and how it could impact various asset classes. So I've, I've been in politics for twenty five years, and deficits and debt really have not mattered. We have increased right. spending, cut taxes, yep. and you know the debt servicing cost of the United States has not changed. And so there's a lack of realization from policymakers that the debt servicing cost is going up and going up in a meaningful way. I have Mm -hmm. to tell you from investors, there's also that view where they say to us, oh, you know, Dan, uh, you know, deficits haven't mattered before. Mm -hmm. What we have found is that when your net interest 
when your net interest cost equals 14% of tax revenue, the bond vigilantes come out. It's something that we haven't seen really since the Berlin Wall fell. And we're at 13% today. So we're very close to where financial markets historically have imposed discipline on Washington. Doesn't mean there's going to be a light switch on the day we hit 14%. But why I start off with that in relation to your question is that you're seeing the Treasury have to play gymnastics with how it's issuing debt. Uh And we've created this thing called the Treasury General Account. We've only had it in place as a large fund for four years. Uh We've only had to refill it once after a debt ceiling. And the Treasury immediately refilled the Treasury General Account after the 2021 debt ceiling. And they did it all out of bank reserves. And when they did that, they drained liquidity out of the system. And it had a major effect on how risk assets traded, how the dollar traded, how the 10-year yield traded, um, and how, uh, how you know, the NASDAQ performed relative to the S&P or growth versus value. Right. It was a big, big impact. Okay. And so we just raised the debt ceiling on June 2nd, uh-huh. and the Treasury's gotten smarter about how to do this. They now have what's called reverse repos to try and get some of that money out. But uh-huh. what we found is that they're only getting about 50% of the money out of reverse repos, which is liquidity neutral. That means the other 50% are coming out of bank reserves. And uh, this has really been going on. This is the third week. The first uh-huh. two weeks, we lost $150 billion of bank reserves. At some point, uh-huh. Dustin, this is going to start to be felt. Yeah. And it's happening as we're in a big week for QE right now, $40 billion. So you have QE, you have I mean, QT happening at the same time you have this Treasury General account being raised. The right. great sucking sound of liquidity is happening. Right. And I wouldn't be surprised if that's one reason why you see yields starting to inch up here. But it's interesting that equities continue. I mean, they've come off the last day or two, but uh, you know, kind of pre-July uh, 4th weekend, uh, I mean, obviously S&P 500 doing quite well uh, on, on a relative basis. So you know, if people were really taking that liquidity concern into account, it wasn't really working as a driver. How would you kind of explain yeah. that away? Most of my clients just stop paying attention to this for that reason, right? Like, all right, we don't care. This is not happening. Yeah, and and so um, let, me, let me just start off by saying when I started in politics, uh-huh. uh, Greenspan just flooded the system with liquidity in three months leading into Y2K because he was worried that we were going to have a computer glitch. Uh-huh. And then the NASDAQ relative to the S&P went absolutely gangbusters from January 1st to March 10th, somewhere around there. So it lasted like a good nine, 10 weeks before you actually started to see the liquidity come out. Once the liquidity came out, it became problematic. I don't think that this is going to be a nine or 10 week. In fact, the NASDAQ was flat relative to the S&P 500 in the entire month of June. And you're already starting to see that begin to flatten out. Where I could be wrong is just that you're getting this mass. If you get a massive reacceleration of growth, Uh And that overwhelms the liquidity challenge. That's the best way to do that, right? Right, So maybe that's happening. So Uh I would celebrate that. But if you're in this kind of muddle through and the economy is kind of weak, the liquidity becomes more important. And the reason why Yellen doesn't want to do it is that she's have it all come out of bank deposits. She's very worried about more bank failures if that happens. Like that's like a legitimate thing, right? And so you start to bring back the March story and you really don't want that stuff happening before a presidential election. So to me, I think we're just starting. We've only we're only two weeks in, and you're starting to see a lot of those trades, even the AI trade, begin to fade out. What I've always asked myself is, 
Was it a liquidity bubble in 2000 or was it a dot-com bubble? And I'm not saying the AI issue is a, a bubble. I think AI could be transformational and, and really dramatically change the productivity of the United States. That just doesn't mean that it's an investable uh, uh, theme right this minute, sure. just the same way the Internet stocks were not investable in 2000 and 2001. So we just got to be careful. In a QE period, the, Q, uh, the price to earnings ratio of stocks have been highly correlated to liquidity. Liquidity is going down. The market is pretty expensive here. And I think it's going to weigh on stocks as we get into the second half of the year. Huh. If I'm wrong, I'm wrong for the right, for the good reason. And that is that the U.S. economy is really beginning to accelerate. And I, I right. would celebrate that. Right. Okay. Maybe a follow up on the liquidity challenge in general. You talked about sort of this being, uh, call it short ish term, uh, being uh, re refinancing uh, after the debt ceiling. Uh, but then you also talked about just the overall uh, cost of uh, debt going forward and challenges for that more over the call it medium to longer term. How do you square those two in your mind and what implications do they have on both uh, shorter or longer term? Awesome question. Because what, what I'm arguing is that what we're doing on liquidity is really just the first. This is the appetizing course, right? Like this is the right. first course uh -huh. of a larger period of austerity. And, the, and, and most investors... And most policymakers have never been in their job during a period of austerity. So it requires a framework change. And what's happening is, as the interest cost has basically doubled, it starts to squeeze out Social Security and Medicare. And now you're facing, you have three trust funds within a 10-year budget window that now have exhaustion of those trust funds, which means Social Security recipients are going to get a 30% cut in their Social Security benefits in 2031. I know that sounds like a long time, but that's going to keep going up and up and up. This is exactly what happened in 1981. And we appointed some unknown economist or little known economist named Alan Greenspan to run what was called the Greenspan Commission <laughs> to create this bill that would raise taxes and cut future benefits for non-retirees. And that was a really important change because we said we're going to make Social Security solvent for the next 50 years. Guess what? The future is now. We're getting right. close to that 50-year timeline, and we're being pressed with this challenge again. So this is why I say we're in this kind of period of austerity. Ronald Reagan cut income tax rates from 90% to 28%, corporate all the way down to about 35% or uh, somewhere around there. And- and and but he raised taxes six times in between that. And that's sort of what we're facing here. And it's going to be a real challenge because it's all spinach and no candy. Now, I say that Congress may wind up doing a small tax bill by the end of this year so that they can get elected in 2024. More money for families, more money for businesses, get right. that economy roaring into the election year. But we are entering a period of austerity, and it is not a, a pretty period for fiscal policymakers because you're, you're taking away more than you're being able to give. And the key is that you solve the entitlement problem for a long period of time. It gives you a lot more flexibility to do the other things you want to do. Maybe just one last question here to just kind of tie up a, a couple of threads on corporate earnings and how you see corporate earnings uh, moving over the next couple of years, kind of tying in. The China side, the the liquidity side, and, and obviously kind of the, the where we started off the 2024 politics side. Um, you know, given where earnings estimates are now, at least S and P earnings estimates are now for for 12 months out, call it 2024. 
How do you see that evolving? Kind of given these these kind of three threads that we've uh, we've been talking about over the last uh, last hour or so. Yeah, I think there's two schools of thought. The first, the the bullish school of thought is earnings are going to come down, and then they're going to V-shape back up in 24 and 25. If that's the case, then I want to buy stocks. And the other side of it is is that corporate earnings are highly elevated because of the money supply, mm-hmm. and we basically flooded the system with money. We are now contracting the money supply for the first time since the 1940s. It is achieving exactly what we want it to do. It is squeezing inflation out of the system. Mm. We're probably going to have a 3% read or 3.2% read on inflation when the numbers get reported somewhere around there. That's amazing to go from eight and a half to three in 12 months from now. Real mm-hmm. earnings are increasing because of that for individuals. And mm. But the downside to your question, Dustin, is that as soon as that money supply begins to shrink, there's about a six-month lead time where it starts to hurt earnings. And earnings are starting to fall here. By the way, the where earnings are falling the most in the NIPA data, in the national income accounts, is at the Federal Reserve, more so than private businesses, which is fascinating, doesn't <laughs> Amazing. it? Amazing. Negative net worth. But eventually it will translate through. And, and the reason why that's important is that when earnings dry up, employment dries up. And when employment dries up, that's when nominal GDP begins to dry up. And so that's why you see an inverted yield curve, this idea that we're going to have the most anticipated recession. That's the thesis behind it. And that's why I think that earnings could be at a, at a lower level than the consensus expects because you're imposing a longer term higher cost on business, which is 3%, not 2%. Mm-hmm. In this globalization era, Dustin, we have had... 2% inflation because we could. Right. Now we're going to have to tolerate a 3% inflation rate, which is not the end of the world. It's what we had before the Berlin Wall went down. We're, but when you have that 3% inflation, you're going to have slightly higher interest rates. You're going to have lower price to earnings ratio on stocks. And you want to choose more value-based stocks. When I say value, I don't mean banks. I mean industrial stocks Okay. and really high value productivity technology stocks because you're going to need that productivity to offset those costs elsewhere. This is a major framework change that we're going through over a longer extended period of time. It is Mm -hmm. not bearish. It requires an adjustment from investors overall. Okay. Well, Dan, I want to thank you for just a fabulous conversation on on a number of different fronts for investors around the world that I, I found honestly really 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 fascinating it's always great to chat with you and uh really appreciate you being our our inaugural guest on mckenzie's new get sharp podcast really appreciate the time and we would love to have you back at some point in the future if you uh if you have time and uh and are interested but thank you um and and matt i'll leave it with you with any uh closing thoughts well it was a great conversation i appreciate you spending the time and walking through that thank you it was an honor to be here best of luck and i'll be listening thank you again for having me perfect thanks a lot Well, Dustin, that was just excellent having Dan on the the podcast. I certainly learned a lot from him. Really sharp, came with a a lot of novel uh, opinions that I I certainly haven't seen in my zeitgeist, at least. Uh, The one that I'd love to run past you and get your reaction to is this concept of the bond vigilantes coming out uh, when uh, the debt burden reaches 14% of receivables. Love to, to get your view on that. We're at 13. We're just a whisker away from that. Right. You know, do you see that uh, the same way that Dan does? And how does that impact your view on uh, fixed income investing uh, over the medium term? 
Yeah, for sure. I mean, I thought the conversation was excellent. I really, I have a lot of time for Dan. I think he does a, an amazing job, and uh, and a lot of the things he thinks about are are you just don't see other people talking about it in the market. So it's always right. it always sparks a lot of interest and thought and thought. And I, you know, I'm I'm a big believer in um, in idea generation, and he, he does he does that. So uh, yeah, it was great having him on as our as our inaugural guest for Get Sharp. I think on uh, yeah on kind of the the 14. percent yeah, I think it's interesting. I, I've seen some of that work before. I haven't done it myself, but I've read other people that have done that, and that that is about in the neighborhood of where sometimes people get interested in terms of being, uh, you know, concerned about uh, a country or an economy. Right. You know, the U.S. obviously is the U.S. Right, so um, you know, at thirteen percent, it's close to that fourteen percent neighborhood. And, you know, is this time going to be the same? Is it not? I mean, that's kind of, you know, maybe a bit up in the air. But the U.S. is is always special because it's still the global safe haven, uh, I would say, asset class of choice, particularly treasuries. Uh, and it's the can, obviously is the global reserve currency of choice with the dollar. Right. So, uh, I mean, I think anything is possible. My guess is there's a bit more of a cushion Kind of beyond that fourteen percent, given the the global economic status, from broadly speaking, that the U.S. has, um, and as I often say, and we probably said on other on other podcasts that you and I have done together in other meetings, you need to have an alternative, right? So if it's not the U.S., then where where are you going to go? And reasonably, where are you going to go that actually has a large enough liquidity bucket, whatever li- sure. that liquidity bucket is, whether it's fixed income or FX or other, and I don't. I don't have a great answer for that because I don't think one completely exists. Maybe maybe there are two or three you can string together, right. um, and maybe and maybe that's good enough. Maybe that suffices. But in terms of I can substitute A for B, I don't think that I don't think that exists. And so I think um, you know it's definitely a stat to keep looking at. And by that I mean the you know thirteen and fourteen's kind of been a number. Um, Let's see how that let's see how that evolves. So I think Dan makes a lot of interesting points there. I mean, we've clearly seen uh, the yield curve rising here, the nominal yield curve rising, Treasuries uh, over the last little bit, much to the surprise of many. Um, and uh, you know, par- maybe maybe part of that rationale is not just the the regular grind, week to week, month to month fundamentals that you know we're all watching. I obviously spend a lot of time on that, but it's more kind of the big picture, medium to longer term macro about you know con- concerns over the U.S. ability to um, you know service its debt, which sounds almost like a, a wild thing to say, but uh, right. you know from a very long, a long to maybe very long term perspective, people are starting to think about that a bit more. Well, for sure. And Dan hit that when he was in his discussion on austerity and sort of all of a sudden we're in a generation potentially yeah. or, or many years of more austerity than fiscal uh, spending. I'd love to get your take too, just uh, quickly on his comment about uh, the Taiwan election maybe being the most important in right. 2024. Uh, yeah. Maybe a little overstated, but I love the the rationale there and, and the right. idea that uh, the the Chinese are recognizing that they need to ease the rhetoric around Taiwan. Do you agree with Dan on that? And, and what's your view? I, mean, I think it's a really fascinating thing. It was definitely one of the takeaways that I had as well from from our conversation. You know, you've seen the U.S. back off a little bit too. Uh, you saw the Secretary of State uh, essentially uh, not not be as what I would call all in on Taiwan in his most recent commentary around, you know, with with Chinese with mainland Chinese officials. So there definitely seems to be a little bit of pulling back from from both sides. Um, yeah, I mean, I think the election, I think the election is important. I think they're I think they're both important, frankly, right? 
because gotcha. uh, I mean the geopolitics yeah. out of the Taiwan elections obvious, and then just general global policy as, as it relates to really everything and alliances, and kind of dovetailing back to what uh, Dan was saying around. You know, if the Republicans go one way, then you know these sets of countries could skew, and then if uh, you know if the if the uh, if the Democrats get in in twenty four, then these countries could skew, and you know I think that's really interesting. But yeah, I think, um, yeah, I mean it's something that's on our radar from a fixed income team perspective. We've been looking at you know dollar Taiwan currency options, you know as a bit of a as a bit of a hedge on mm-hmm. on geopolitical risk, and it's not it's not a massive market, so it, it wouldn't necessarily. Uh, be one for one in, in case something did go, you know, the wrong way geopolitically, so to speak. But, right. uh, you know, it's something that, you know, it's something that we we definitely look at. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's important. There's, as these things often go, there's a high probability of kind of what I would call like nothing done, as we say. And so it's just an, a non-event, right? And there's a very, very small probability that something could be very serious. And, and then it's a very material event and it affects really all investors across all asset classes from a global risk sentiment perspective. And it's tough to, it's tough to gauge exactly what the expected value of that is, but, you know, sitting here, you know, today in July, 2023, um, you know, there's definitely a strong probability that it's going to be not, not a big deal. And, uh, and the U S election will be a bigger deal because there's a very high probability that the U S election will be a big deal kind of no matter which way it goes. So it's, it's interesting when you kind of look at the, um, you know, the payoff structure as you or expected value structure and, you know, how to, how to trade these things, but it's definitely the Taiwan election. I think it's important. And I think the takeaway for me out of this conversation today is probably need to spend a little more time looking at that from a, from right. a, a risk, uh, you know, risk management perspective, not, not just for the event itself, but also just for, you know, all the asset classes that, uh, you know, we cover and sub asset classes that we cover within fixed time. And, and also I would say within, you know, my, my view on, or my seat on the global investment committee. That's great, Dustin. Why don't we call it there? I look forward to the next guests that uh, we're going to reach into your Rolodex and find in the next several weeks here. Uh, but Dustin, this was a great conversation. I thought Dan was uh, totally enlightening. I appreciate your comments as well. Yeah, for sure. It was great. Thanks very much for your partnership on this and look forward to the next one. content of this podcast, including facts, views, opinions, and recommendations, is not to be used or construed as investment advice and is not an offer or an invitation to buy or sell any security. The content of this podcast should not be relied upon for any purposes and McKenzie Financial Corporation is not responsible for any reliance upon it. This podcast includes forward-looking information that reflects our current expectations or forecasts of future events. Forward-looking information is subject to risks, uncertainties, and assumptions that could cause actual results to differ materially from those expressed herein. Our views are subject to change based on market conditions. Commissions, trailing commissions, management fees, and expenses may be associated with mutual fund investments. Please read the fund facts and prospectus before investing. The indicated rates of returns are historical annual compounded total returns, including changes to unit values and reinvestment of all dividends or distributions and does not take into account sales, redemptions, distribution, or optional charges or income taxes payable by any security holder that would have reduced returns.